turn to two places with me. First of all, Luke chapter 16, and you can bookmark Luke 16 uh, either with a bulletin or if you're using an iPhone, iPad, or i whatever, you can bookmark Luke 16, and then we're going to begin our study in Revelation chapter 20. So Luke 16, Revelation 22 texts we're going to look at together this morning. There are numerous things in your bulletin, things upcoming at TBC, things happening. Our staff is working hard as we launch many things for the fall and uh, spending a lot of time looking at that. Opportunities for you to be in small groups, to be involved in community with other believers as you grow together in the Savior. So be looking at that. Go to our website. There are a lot of things there, and you can get additional information. A lot of things happening for women this summer as well, so... We invite you to peruse those things and follow God's leading. We're doing a series entitled Shipwrecked. As I mentioned earlier, this morning we look at a message uh, on hell. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Revelation 20:12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, Standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and the Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you write in your Bibles, you might want to underline verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Father, none of us want to be cast into the lake of fire forever. Not only us, but Father, certainly ones we love, the ones around us, we desire for them to spend eternity in your presence. We recognize that is up to you, not to us. But you've given us the privilege of sharing the gospel with those who don't know you. In Christ's name. Amen. Preaching on hell isn't popular. Most people don't believe in hell anymore. Most people don't want to hear about hell. Most people don't want to think about hell. Most pastors don't talk about hell. In a recent Pew survey, the Boston Globe reports that uh, 35,000 people were interviewed in the sample. 74% of Americans believe that there is a heaven. Only 54% believe there's a hell. And so we want to believe in heaven, we don't want to believe in hell. We want to go to heaven, we don't want to go to hell. We don't want to offend people when they show up at our churches. We want them to hear only the good news, but the reality of it is the scriptures are filled with the bad news as well. Scriptures teach very clearly about hell, and that's what we're going to look at today. A definition of what it is, where it is, how you get there, and most importantly, how to avoid it. But hell is passe in our day and age. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's something that's gone away. Somebody sent me a number of advertisements that are passe as well. These are advertisements you wouldn't use today. And as I was looking through those this week, I thought, that's exactly what hell's like. Nobody's going to use these advertisements, and most people don't talk about hell. Here's some advertisements you wouldn't see used today. Here's one that appeared in a newspaper. Free for chubbies. There you go, ladies. How do you like that one? Fall and winter fashion, book of charming, chubby size clothes. At the bottom it says, teens who are too chubby to fit in regular sizes and everything else is priced the same as theirs. When I was a little kid, my mom used to take me shopping. She would take me to the Husky department. I was a football player. I thought that was a good thing. When I got older, I realized it wasn't a good thing at all. Uh, Here's one. Christmas morning, she'll be happier with a Hoover. And all of you guys that want to do that and give your wife a vacuum cleaner for Christmas, make an appointment for counseling and see me this week. 
Uh, here you go. I'm not going to leave this one up too long because you're going to want to write down the address. as an advertisement back in the 1800s. Cocaine toothache drops instantaneous cure. You bet you were cured instantaneously. You get it for only 15 cents at a place in New York. I'm going to move on because some of you are going to want to copy that address down. Here's one for you. Most doctors smoke camel, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Can you see that in today's ads? Isn't that neat? Well, what cigarette does your doctor recommend to you, by the way? And then uh, one of my favorites is this one. For a better start in life, start cola earlier. How soon is too soon? You can't read the fine print, but I can read it to you. It says, how soon is too soon? Not soon enough. Laboratory tests over the last few years have proven that babies that start drinking soda during their early formative period have a much higher chance of gaining acceptance and fitting in during those awkward preteen years. So do yourself a favor. Do your child a favor. Start them on a strict regimen of sodas and other sugary carbonated beverages right now for a lifetime of guaranteed happiness. <laughs> Says the Soda Pop Board of America did that. I think it was the American Dental Association, actually, that did that one. Right. I mean, those are advertisements you would never see today, but uh, they were in our papers not too long ago, and the reality of it is not many people talk about hell, study hell, teach about hell, think about hell, just like those advertisements have gone away, hell has gone away. But the sad reality is it hasn't. The tragic reality of it's still there. It always will be. The, the tragic reality of it is that some of the people you love dearly, some of the people who work with you, some of your neighbors, some of the parents of other kids who play soccer and baseball with your kids are headed to hell. In a group this size, at Temple Bible Church, on a Sunday morning, we've got folks today headed to hell. Hell's called the neglected doctrine. Hell doesn't sell anymore. We want to leave church feeling good. We don't want to be offensive. We want to be seeker-friendly. But I would be remiss if I didn't call you and set, call out and say, hell is a reality. We all want to avoid it. ACDC in 1979 produced their first million-seller album. What was the name of it? Highway to Hell. A bunch of you know it. How many of you know that? Raise your hands. It's okay. Okay, here are the lyrics from that the song that was the bestseller on that thing. Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, ask nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I would rather do, going down party time. My friends are going to be there too, I'm on a highway to hell, no stop sign, speed limit, nobody's going to slow me down. Like a wheel going to spin it, nobody's going to mess me around. Hey, Satan paid my dues playing a rocking, rocking band. Hey, mama, look at me. I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on the highway to hell. Don't stop me. I'm going down all the way down. I'm on the highway to hell. Became the number one album and the number one single in 1979. And we rocked to that. On the highway to hell. The tragic reality of it is some people are headed that way. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, theologian, philosopher of yesteryear, had an assistant, and his assistant was passing by a graveyard one day, and he noticed the epitaph on a tombstone that lay on top of the grave an avowed atheist. Tombstone said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. The assistant came to his office, he went into C.S. Lewis's office and told him about this good piece of grade for humor, graveyard humor. Lewis didn't smile, he didn't laugh, he looked at his assistant and he said, I bet he wishes that were true now. All dressed up, no place to go.
The tragedy is hell is real. The tragedy is you ain't going to be playing with your homies, as Tony Evans said. I quoted him two weeks ago. He says, you think hell's going to be a party with your friends? You think you're going to party with your homies down under? He says, turn on your stove, sit on the burner, and try and party. See how that works. (laughs) The tragic reality is that hell is real. Heaven's perfect, said, said Turner. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring. In hell, we at least have a chance to make things better because it's such a mess. Poor Ted Turner. Every time I read it, I pray for him. I've used that quote four or five times. And I thought, Lord, I pray that sometime in his life he turns to Jesus because he's going to find that reality is not true. Hell. If you study the doctrine of hell, there's some questions you have to ask. The first question, and I think the question that has to be asked and that more people ask anything else, why hell? Why would a good and loving God create a place like hell? Why would a good and loving God allow anyone to go to hell? If God is loving and kind, why did he create hell in the first place? Why is it there? In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But what the scriptures teaches is that man was created with perfection. Man fell, Adam and Eve. We were in Adam and Eve, and when they fell, we fell. The result is we all sin. That sin produces separation from God. That separation from God means that we cannot stand in his presence because he is holy and we are sinful. The, the, the reality of it, though, is God sent his son so that our sins might be forgiven. But the justice of God, the justice of God demands payment for that sin. And the justice of God demands and created a place like hell. The story of the Bible and the story of human history from Genesis to Revelation, you hold in your hand the story of God's love for his people. You hold in your hand the story of God's redemption. You hold in your hand the story of God seeking after people who have separated themselves from him. You hold in your hand a book that tells you about the love of God for the world. In fact, in the most familiar verse in the scripture that tells us about God's love and his sending a sacrifice on our behalf, it's John 3.16. Would you quote it with me? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That scripture teaches of God's love, of God's sacrifice, and of the hope of heaven. And so what you see there is that even though hell is a present reality created by God because of his justice, because of man's sin, many people want to reject its reality. The Bible refers to hell 167 times. 167 times. I didn't count them all. I Googled it up. 167 times. But never forget there is a cross at the entrance to hell. The only way a person can go there is to push the cross aside and deliberately reject God's love and God's forgiveness. That's how you get there. That's how you get there. Now, there are many people that are obviously bothered by the reality of hell. And so we come up with different explanations of it. For the first group, the naturalist or the atheist. Basically, as one guy said in the film, I am physical when I die. Basically, there's no afterlife. We become petroleum for shell like all the other animals that exist. We're just another part of the animal world, and the reality of it is you die, you breathe your last, your body's placed in the ground, there's no afterlife, and you cease to exist. 
There's a universalist. The universalist says that a loving God will save everyone, so there's no hell. On the other side of death is the opportunity to believe, and everyone will believe. It's called universalism. There's annihilation. The belief of annihilation is that unbelievers will not experience eternal torment. They'll only experience that for a season, and then every unbeliever will be annihilated. So there is a heaven, but there's no such place as hell, and those who don't believe will be annihilated, and life will end for them. In seeking to resolve some of this and seeking to raise some money, in medieval times, the Catholic Church invented a place called purgatory. If you look for the word purgatory in the Bible, it does not exist. Purgatory is a time of purification. It's a time where temporary punishment can be worked off, so to speak, by friends of God. I get that quote straight out of a website. This is not a biblical doctrine. It's largely the creation of the medieval Catholic Church to raise money. In fact, the motto of those in the Protestant Reformation was, another coin in the coffer rings another soul from purgatory springs. There's a way for the church to make money. You could buy indulgences. You could free your friends, your family members from purgatory so they could enter into the presence of the living God, paying to have sins of the deceased purified. What do the scriptures teach about hell? The scriptures teach, first of all, that there is an afterlife. In Daniel chapter 12, I go many places. Here's just one. In Daniel chapter 12, too, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The teaching of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is that everyone will live forever. Scriptures go on and teach that not only is there an afterlife, but you will not be annihilated. Jesus himself is speaking in Matthew 25:46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So not only is there an afterlife, and not only is there not annihilation, there is also not universalism. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those who come to me, no one comes to me except through the Father. The only hope for heaven is those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So the reality of it is universalism does not exist. In fact, in Hebrews 9.27, it says as people are destined to die once, after that comes the judgment. There's no opportunity to believe on the other side of this earth. The reality of it is what you believe here determines where you will spend eternity. You will live forever. The only question is where? Smoking or non-smoking? Where are you going to spend eternity? Who's going to populate hell? I mean, who is it that's going to populate hell? Who's going to be there? Revelation 20 bears that out. In 2015, we read the whole section. It says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And you're saying, man, if there's any book I want my name in, it's this book, right? If there's any book I want to find my name written in, it's this book. God is the one who places our name there. And how do you know if your name is there? It's when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the reality of it is your name would be found in the book of life. Now, I understand the doctrine of election. I understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God is the one who's sovereign overall. He's the one who chooses. But the ever-present reality is, if your name is not in the book of life, the reality of it is you've not trusted Christ as Savior. If you've trusted him as Savior, you can be sure that your name is in the book of life. It's interesting. It says at the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 13, they are judged how? According to their what? What's it say? According to their, look at your Bibles, 12 and 13, according to their what? According to their works or their deeds. Gary, you've taught us for 31 years that we are not judged according to our works, but the Bible says we are. 
How are these unbelievers judged and cast into hell because of their works? The reality of it is their works are shown to them and they're labeled insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. Only the blood of Christ can free us from all sin. And so when they see their works, they recognize how insufficient they are to try and work their way into the presence of the living God forever. And then they are cast into a Christless eternity. Gary, what about the heathen in Africa? What about the devoted followers of world religions, those who don't accept Christ, the native who never hears? Will they go to hell? Go to the website. Two weeks ago, I preached a message on the wrath of God from Romans 1, 2, and 3. And the reality of it is all men have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal life separated from God. But God, being rich in his mercy, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. The eternal hope is in the Savior and him alone. That's it. So why hell? Because God is just. Who will populate hell? Those who are not found in the book of life. Luke chapter 16. Turn with me to a parable but called the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Why hell? God's justice, God's holiness demands it. Who will populate hell? Those who have not accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man is a parable of contrast. It's a parable of contrast. It's a contrast between earthly riches and earthly poverty, eternal riches and and eternal poverty, and finally it shows us the concern of a rich man. Picking up in verse 19, there was a certain rich man, and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in a splendor every day. This guy had it all. He had it all. He had designer tunics. He shopped at the best places. His table was filled with Epicurean delights. He had roasted lamb. He had the fruit of the sea. He had the finest wines. He had everything that you can imagine. He had a Ford Chariot garage, flat screen TVs, zero edge pool. He had it all. The the leaders of government, the leaders of state, the leaders of the community would all dine at his table. He was a very wealthy man. He had everything that this world could offer. He was living the dream. Who's living the dream. But there's a certain poor man named Lazarus. By the way, in all the parables that Jesus spoke, this is the only guy given a name. Pretty interesting. It says there's a certain rich, a certain poor man named Lazarus. He laid at the gate. He was covered with sores. He longed to be fed from the rich man's t- from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He was not asking to come in and have a meal. He was just saying, when you sweep up the floor, would you bring a morsel to me because I'm starving? Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking on his sores. I mean, this guy was scurvied up, and the reality, the only hope he had was not medicinal. The only hope he had was from dogs coming to lick his sores so he could find a little relief to all the scabs that consumed his body. Before Jesus spoke this parable, he told an audience of Pharisees that you can't serve two masters. And if you look at 16.13, he says you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other, or you will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. You see, the Pharisees loved the stuff of this world, and when they heard Jesus teach about this, they sneered. They looked at him and they realized he was talking to them about divided loyalties producing a divided, uh, a divided love and a divided heart. And so they turned and they walked away from him. What the Pharisee valued more than anything in life was the life of luxury. And so Jesus launches into this parable into their presence. 
This guy lives in his gated estate in the finest community, has everything on his table, has everything in his house. Outside of his gate is a beggar named Lazarus who is dumped there like a sack of garbage. Who's going to stop and help him? The rich man's house is filled with everything but one thing, and that's mercy. People walk by and they turn their head when they see him. They walk by and they clock their tongues when they look at him and say, why didn't he get up and get a job while he take care of himself? Look, he's suffering the punishment of God because of his sin. The scriptures go on. And it says, it came about, in verse 22, the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man died and he was buried. What we find here is that uh, life ends for both these men. The, the, the poor man who's never had anything, his sores now are healed, his suffering is forever behind him, his humiliation is past, and now he has a place of honor. He is now placed in the bosom of Abraham. In verse 23, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment, and he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus was in his bosom. Now the poor man is in the place of honor for eternity, while the rich man is separated from God forever. As Lazarus was once slumped in torment outside the gates of the rich man's estate, now the rich man is outside of heaven's gate. Which would you prefer? Which would you prefer? Most of us live our lives like the rich man. By the way, let me remind you, the Old Testament definition of a rich man was a person who had food for the day at the start of the day and a change of clothes. Let me say that again. If you have food for the day at the start of today, do you have any food at all in your cupboard? Any? Do you have a change of clothes? You do. If I see you tomorrow, you're probably going to be dressing the same thing. If you're all you go take a shower and change. If you have food for the day, start a day and change your clothes, by the biblical definition, you're rich. So when you read this, don't think about the Forbes 500 people. Think of yourself. He says, this rich man dies, and he goes to Hades, and he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus. Here he is, even calling in the afterlife for the poor guy to wait upon him. Send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, cool off my tongue. I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things, Lazarus bad things. Now he is being comforted. You are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that is fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. The reality of it is when you breathe your last, you're in a fixed eternity, period. Period. It's a place of torment. Not a place of torture, but a place of torment. Death is real. Eternal life is real. Those who are separated from God will be punished. When Jesus finishes the parable, the Pharisees are speechless Their sneers become silence because it's their lives. He's indicted with his words. Their heart has been exposed. Their self-indulgence has been revealed. They hoarded not only their physical stuff. Even worse, they hoarded the truth of the love of God. You see, the people outside the gates were the people who were not part of the covenantal family, and they knew the goodness of God. They understood God's mercy. They understood who Jehovah was in the Old Testament. They were part of the covenantal family, but they never turned to the beggars outside of the gate to offer them the hope of eternal life. They not only hoarded the physical stuff, they hoarded the spiritual stuff, and the teaching of this parable drives deep at home, not just to them, but to us. 
because we too have been given the grace of the gospel, how dare we hoard it to ourselves? How dare we allow those who are perishing outside the gate not to hear the truth and the reality of how they can be healed forever? And so Jesus ends the parable. The parable ends this way. It says, and he said to them, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I've got five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And he, but, but Abraham said, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. He says, wait a minute, I've given you Moses, I've given you the prophets. He says, if I send a dead person back to life to speak to your brothers, that they already have the truth of the word, why would they believe that? By the way, as an aside, you know there are a lot of books out there right now? Books about people who die and have these experiences and they all go to heaven, they all go in the presence of God from a three-year-old that several of you gave me those books, many of you have read that best-selling book and and then also a guy in East Texas who was in an accident at 30 minutes in heaven or 90, whatever it's called, 90 minutes in heaven. Let me tell you something, my friends, you don't need that stuff. That's what this parable is teaching. I, I'm the biggest skeptic in here when it comes to that. Three-year-olds that go to heaven, come back and give a full report and all this stuff. I read the book. I went through it. I reread it again this week. Here's the reality, and I'm bursting some of your bubbles. I recognize that. Send me your emails. We'll dialogue about it. But the reality of it, Jesus says, if people come back from the dead, they're not going to believe. You have, not only do you have the law and the prophets and Moses, you have the resurrected Savior to point you to the truth. And here's my contention with some of that. The, the guy in East Texas, I'm sure he's a good godly man. I, I've never met him. I've seen him on video. I've heard of him. He's a Baptist preacher in Texas. But here's the reality. If you're in the presence of God for 90 minutes, you're with Jesus for 90 minutes, and you're begging to come back to earth, that does not measure up in my theology of what heaven is like. God, I want to go back to earth. After you've been in the presence of Jesus I mean, do you see that in the scriptures? I'm thinking, oh my goodness, or three-year-olds that go to heaven, maybe he did. I'm not here to say he didn't, but the reality of it is, those of you who say, if I have signs, if I have wonders, if they had signs, if they had wonders, they would believe. The scriptures say just the opposite. It says, I'm not sending somebody back from the dead to teach them because they've got the truth of the word. They've rejected the prophets. They've rejected Moses, and now they reject the Savior. This parable teaches a number of things. First of all, once you die, you're fixed. You're going to be in heaven or hell, one or the other. You're going to live forever there. There's no going back and forth. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no universalism. There's no annihilation. The reality of hell, there's no second chance. It's the impossibility of the dead to communicate with the living. I mean, there are many truths in this parable. It's a parable of contrast. By the way, one question you have to ask, did the rich man go to hell because he was rich and Lazarus go to heaven because he was poor? Obviously, no. I mean, it's because of the heart. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves on sight of men, but God knows your hearts. It's the heart of man who's trusted in Jesus Christ that places one in eternity in the presence of God forever. But the reality of it is it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a hideous place. Hell is a hideous place. 
It's hideous and it's hopeless. My prayer is that we'll all escape it. The hideousness of hell. Weeping is not something that you get a grip on. Weeping gets a grip on you. You gnash your teeth when you're in pain, when you're in anxiety, when you're struggling. You gnash your teeth because of trauma from the past or trauma in the present. The teaching on hell is that it's a hideous place. It's a place of weeping, of wailing, of gnashing of teeth. You ever hear somebody wail? Uncontrollably, you see funerals on TV, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Most folks are uncomfortable around people who are weeping and wailing. The problem is hell is full of them. It's a picture of total distress, uncontrollable emotion, and it's not good. Hell is a place of hopelessness, of darkness, of fire, of separation from God. It's a place of torment. Hell is hideous and hopeless. My prayer is that today you'll make sure you escape it. If there's any doubt in your mind, if you have personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, why would you risk not trusting him today and spending eternity separated from him in a place of torment? Secondly, Teaching is also our evangelism should be urgent. Our evangelism should be urgent. We think about all our loved ones that go to heaven. And that's a good thing to do. We've got loved ones there. Heaven is now popular with people in our family, people we love, dozens of people. I've done a couple hundred funerals, maybe, maybe probably way more than that. In my years at Temple Bible Church, we are populating heaven. I want you to think about something else for a second. You've got a family member you know never did come to know Jesus as Savior? A friend? A neighbor? A cohort has died? I want you to think about what eternal life is for them right now. I want you to think about their present reality right now. Bev and I had dear friends who we spent 20 to 30 years with an older couple who both passed away within the last seven, eight years. We have shared Christ with them every way we know how. To my knowledge, they died without ever trusting Christ as Savior. There are times when I sit and think about them and where they are now. The tragedy of that reality. The sad tragedy of that right now. Hell is a very real place. People go there. And so our evangelism should be urgent. Four or five years ago, my dad and I were headed to College Station uh, after a service here on a Sunday afternoon to meet our family in College Station. And we went the back way by Greens and then 485 back that way towards Hearn. There's a stop sign that crosses uh, Highway 77, crosses 45. There's a stop sign on 45. There's not on Highway 77. Cars are coming 70 miles an hour down there. There's a young lady in front of us in a car. And uh, she stops at the stop sign. She pulls out and she doesn't see a truck coming the other way at 70 miles an hour are pulling a boat. This car, this truck T-bones this lady in this small car. And I tell my dad, we're getting ready to run out the doors. I tell my dad, she's not going to make it. She's not going to make it. I said, be prepared to see a bunch of blood. And he ran to one car. I ran to the other. By God's grace, they, they were hurt badly, but everybody survived that accident. They had to be life-flighted to Temple to Scott and White, but they all survived. That's out in the country. 
And within a couple of minutes after that accident took place, there were 20 or 30 people frantically trying to help the couple in the truck and the young lady in the car. Dad and I were the first ones there because we saw it. We witnessed it right behind it. But, but within just a matter of, it seemed like, seconds, there were 20, 30 people urgently trying to do whatever we could to save the lives of those people. Let me tell you something worse and something we should be more urgent about. People in our families, our friends, other parents whose kids are on the same soccer and baseball teams as our friends, guys we play golf with, ladies we shop with, who don't know Jesus. Just as folks urgently merged upon that wreck, we should be urgent in our evangelization of those who don't know Christ. God is the one who ultimately saves them, but we have the privilege to be part of that process. Chuck Colson in one of his books writes this. He said, I was indicted, as you know, I was indicted for my role in Watergate. Far more difficult than going to prison was the moment I stood in the courtroom and I heard the clerk read the United States of America versus Charles W. Colson. The scars from that moment remain to this day. I've been forgiven by God's grace, but I can still hear those words echo in my mind. The United States of America versus Charles W. Colson. To be told that your country and your friends are casting you out creates unspeakable shame. But let me tell you something much worse. It's to hear the voice of God say, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. I know you not. And then to be cast into a Christless eternity. Finally, our hearts should be grateful. Our hearts should be grateful. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Because the closest to hell I'm ever going to get is right here, right now. Because from here, I go to the presence of Jesus. And you should be so grateful that you should just worship the Savior from the depths of your heart and for your heart. Worship team, would you guys come up? I want us to conclude this time by giving praise to God, by thanking Christ. Some of you are at a crossroads. Some of you are at a crossroads right now. It's an eternal crossroads. And so here's what I'd like to do. I want to conclude our service in a second. We're going to sing together, but before we do that, some of you are not sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Why would you walk out of this building without certainty? In 1 John chapter 5, John says, I've written these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Not thank, hope, or maybe you can know by trusting Christ as your Savior. Secondly, secondly, we all know somebody, we all have somebody in our life, every single one of us in our sphere of influence, in our family, somewhere around us who doesn't know Jesus yet. The greatest thing we can do right now is to intercede for them. So in a moment, Dev and I are going to be up here. If I've got elders here this hour, would you guys just stand up right where you are and head to the back aisles? Would you do that for me? Elders and wives, would you do that for me? One there, one there, one there. These are men and women who want to pray with you. You want to go back there and pray for somebody that knows Jesus? They'll pray with you. They'll pray with you. You want to come get on your knees? We have dozens of people on their knees weeping and interceding for lost people. People who if they breathe their last today would be cast into Christless eternity. Their family, their friends, their neighbors. Would you do that? Give me a little more light, guys, if you will. Somebody bumped it back there. And if you don't know Jesus, 
man, you go talk to an elder. You come pray with me and Bev up here. So I'm going to pray in a second. And I invite you to move if you want to. Come get your knees. Intercede for lost family members, lost friends. Go to the back. Pray with an elder and his wife. Receive Christ for the first time. Or they'll intercede with you for lost folks. Our evangelism needs to be urgent. And we need to be grateful. And you need to escape hell. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son so that we could have eternal life. Eternal life in your son. We give praise to the Savior who paid his all for us. And God, our hearts are heavy because we all know people who need Jesus. People we love, people we care for. People who, if they died today, would be cast from your presence forever. So we worship you. We depend upon you, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Come get on your knees. Go pray with an elder. Come pray with me and Bev. Sin had left a crimson stain. He 
last hour and this hour, you get some new brothers and sisters in the kingdom, and we give praise to God for that. Amen? Amen. Father, we pray. Thousands of prayers have gone up this day for people that need to know Jesus. Spirit of God, we recognize it's only a work you can do, and so we pray that you would touch hearts and lives in deep places so that Christ will be found as Savior, eternal hope, 